as we look to our Lord in prayer. Now, our Father, what we want to do is to be true to your word. And as we look into your word this morning and we consider what we find here, it's very, very possible that there are people struggling here with the whole issue of the certainty of salvation. But we can't add to what Jesus Christ did on the cross. It's not our right to subtract from what Christ did on the cross. When he said, it is finished, it is finished. What he did was sufficient. Sufficient in satisfaction of your justice. Sufficient in the matter of redemption of your people. And we've got to be able to rest in the sufficiency of the finished work of Jesus Christ. It means, Father, that you've taught us that we don't put our faith in our works, because that means we're simply adding to what Christ did and saying it was insufficient. But rather, we are to put our faith in Christ's work and Christ's work alone. And there we find the security of sufficiency found in Jesus and Jesus alone. We need to understand these things. We need to embrace these truths. We need to be able to fully comprehend the significance of what took place on that cross and the dynamic and the effect it has upon our lives here in 2017. So, Father, in these minutes you give us together, again, we're praying that you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, that you would shape these wills. Because again, Father, we've come here now to see Jesus, him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. I was sitting in the baseball stands watching the game unfold, and my son was on the mound pitching. Ball was hit to the third baseman, and he not only bobbled the ball, but then he threw the ball away and was given what we would simply call a double error. Now, his body language when he made his way back to the bench was such that he knew, he knew that it seemed as though he had the whole weight of the world on his shoulders. Sports is unforgiving in many ways because when something goes wrong on the field, everybody notices. And he's incredibly self-conscious. I'm watching his body language now as he makes his way among his teammates but he separates himself from his teammates, and he sits at the far end of the bench. I'm watching his coach. Burke is a wise man. He was a college pitcher, blew his arm out, rotator cuff injury. He understands something about the fact that you're not merely dealing with players. You're dealing with people. And so he makes a motion to one of his assistant coaches to involve in the everyday, in, in every minute of the game, while he makes his way over to this dejected player on the far side of the bench and sits down next to him. I'm watching carefully the dynamic. This is leadership unfolding in front of my very eyes. I see his hand motions. Burke is motioning here, motioning there. 
helping the young man understand how to better position himself out on the field. And then I see him, I pat him on the back, and leave. And I watch this young player's head just simply lift. He's becoming re-engaged, you see, with what's going on. Not separating himself from what's going on and from everyone else around him. He's ready to go back into action. What his coach has really done is that he has provided what I'll call the reassurance of assurance. He had enough assurance in that young man to put him out on the field in the opening inning. But now he recognized that what this young man needed was a sense of reassurance before he goes back out into the field. Extra attention required. In the opening verses of the Apostles' epistle, he is stated in chapter 2, verse 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him, hasn't he? In other words, he has said, you can know that you know him. What he wants to offer there is assurance. But now what we are looking at here in chapter 3, beginning in verse 19 through 24, is reassurance. Evidently, something has crept into the mindset, into the heart of these people, and he realizes he's going to have to circle around, come back, and readdress some issues, because even though he's taught this objectively, at the same time they're wrestling with this subjectively. He's dealing with real life here, as do you and as do I. So whether you're a teacher, whether you're dealing with issues in the workplace or at home as a parent, whether you're grappling with life as a single person in relationship to other people around you, what I want to do with you now is to talk about how to be able to experience this sense of certainty in this uncertain world how to bring to the heart of the believer now, because this epistle is written to believers, reassurance of assurance. And I want to draw out two significant connections that are found here in these verses that I think will take us a long way to understand how to address this. And the first is found now in verse, in verse 19 and verse 20. I want you to note first with me the connection between reassurance and a believer's condemning heart. Now, I have not said reassurance and the unbelievers condemning heart. But rather, we're talking at this point about the believers' heart. The Gospel of John was written to unbelievers so that they would believe and put faith and trust in Jesus. The epistle assumes that those people have now come to saving faith, and now it is written to believers, that they will grow in what they have found in Jesus. So he begins now with this verse 19, emphasizing the word know once again. By this we shall know. And you raise your hand and say, but Gary, what does he mean by this? By what this am I supposed to know? Well, the answer is verse 18, you see. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed 
and in truth. So now he's piqued their interest. There's something about living in truth. What does that entail? So he begins to build his case again by saying, by this we shall know. One of his favorite words carries with it the idea to find out, to realize. It's more than merely objective knowledge. It's also subjective knowledge, but it is more than subjective knowledge. It is also objective knowledge. It is more than informational, it is also personal. But with the personal is also the informational. He wants you to take the truth and relate it. By this we shall know, and then he states this, that we are of the truth. Now you've got to ask yourself the question, am I a person who is of the truth? Or do I just simply hang around people on Sunday morning and I am among those who are of the truth, but I am not merely, I am not one who is one who belongs to the truth. I was pondering that because after some graduation gatherings yesterday, I went back home and I went on the internet because I was curious with the various commencement. Uh, speeches that were being given, what was being stated. I knew that Vice President Pence was going to be at Grove City on Saturday, Notre Dame on Sunday here. And furthermore, I knew that Oprah Winfrey was going to be in two different settings over this weekend. And I was taken aback a little bit by what she said as she spoke to the graduates at Skidmore College, upstate New York, where she challenged them to follow their, quote, inner truth and live a spiritual life. And then would go on to say in his speech, I've been so blessed to live inside the dream of God. She said, noting that she has learned to follow her inner truth in her career. And I pondered that because I asked myself a question at that point. If uh, Ms. Winfrey would sit down with me over a cup of coffee, one of the things that I would want to ask her is, and what is the source, or who is the source of that truth you spoke of? Pilate's looking at Jesus. So you're king, Jesus answered. You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Oskinus. And back to baseball. Oskinus, in his incredibly wise book, Time for Truth, pens these thoughts. There's a story of three baseball umpires debating their different philosophies of umpiring. There's balls and there's strikes, says the first umpire. And I call them the way they are. 
No, exclaims the second umpire, that's arrogant. There's balls and there's strikes, and I call them the way I see it. That's no better, says the third. Why beat around the bush? Why not be realistic about what we do? There's balls and there's strikes, and they ain't nothing until I call them. Three different takes on truth. Miss Winfrey, who or what is the source of the truth of which you spoke of truth in your inner life? For you see, the first umpire represents objective truth, independent of the person. It's to be discovered. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Now, the second umpire speaks for moderate relativism. It's truth as each person sees it. Watch out for that one in college classrooms. But then there's the third umpire who bluntly expresses his radically relativistic position Truth is not there to be discovered. It is for each of us to create for ourselves. Miss Winfrey, who then or what is the source of truth? What is the basis for authoritative truth? This is the issue, the hour in our culture. Not is it true, but whose truth is it? Because as Hitler's propaganda minister, Gables, declared, quote, we do not talk to say something, but to obtain a certain effect. Put another way, lying is no longer lying if you are telling your own personal truth story or speaking for the larger truth of your identity group. Now, here is the collision then that we're experiencing where week by week we go through verse by verse God's word, which is without error. By this we shall know that we are of the truth. So now you've got to ask yourself a critical question at this point Do I belong? Do I belong to the realm of the truth? To the one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Now, once you begin to process this, and you are thinking effectively in a culture that is redefining even biblical terms, you keep working the text. By this we shall know that we are of the truth. And then adds this, because you and I need to do this individually and then in the home as well, and reassure our heart before him. People need reassurance of biblical assurance. 
We need to be able to say, I know what I know. As John would put it in the opening chapters. Some, you see, know that they know. They've got true assurance. Some don't know that they don't know. That's false assurance. Some know that they don't know. And some don't know that they know. Got that? Maybe we need a heart check at this point. Because what he does is that he takes his stethoscope up, places it there, and challenges you and me that we need to reassure at the end of verse 19 our heart before him. John Stone asks, what kinds of music or noise arrive at the listening end of the stethoscope? Dr. Stone is both a cardiologist and a poet. And one of his volumes that I love is a set of essays entitled The Country of Hearts, Journeys in the Art of Medicine. And he's got this incredible story. He calls my office late Friday afternoon to say that his heart has been running away with him all day. He's 35, has had an artificial aortic valve in place for 12 years. Out of curiosity, I ask him to place the mouthpiece of his phone firmly against his chest wall. I listen Closely, and the clicks of his artificial valve are easy to hear. His heart rate's rapid, about 180 beats a minute and grossly irregular. Diagnosis is clear. He has a rhythm disturbance. I diagnose as atrial fibrillation. I tell him that I'll phone in a prescription for him. He's to pick it up on his way home, take three of the tablets, call me in an hour or so. It's dark outside when the phone rings, but the news is good. A few minutes ago, abruptly, his heart slowed and the sense of fluttering in his chest vanished. And over the phone, as he places his phone again next to his heart, the clicks of his valve are slow and regular. I've never used my phone before as a kind of long-distance stethoscope. But in this case, the technique worked beautifully. Over the miles between us, I give him assurance as we bid each other a good night. Do you have that sense of assurance? as you bid one another in your home a good night. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth. No possibilities here, but certainties. And reassure our heart before him. And what strikes me here is that it's not God reassuring your heart. 
it's you reassuring your heart if you're a believer. In other words, you and I are to take responsibility for our reassurance. He provided the assurance, now we provide the reassurance. How? By taking the truth of God's word and applying it where? To our hearts. So we pull out our spiritual stethoscopes at this point. We ask ourselves the tough questions. Which of these categories do I find myself in? Some know that they know. Some know that they don't know. Some don't know that they don't know. And some don't know that they know. And I ask myself, what kind of music is emanating from my heart? And is there the certainty of salvation that is found not in my works, but in Christ's finished work? Now you're ready for verse 20. Because he adds, For whenever, whenever our heart condemns us, he's writing this to believers now. God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Notice it doesn't say when he condemns us. It says when our hearts condemn us. And he's not writing to unbelievers at this point. He's writing to believers at this point. And he would fuse the teachings of the Apostle Paul from Romans chapter 8 verse 1. There is no condemnation for those who are where? In Christ Jesus. The one who is in Christ Jesus is one who is of the truth. But one who is outside of Christ Jesus is one who is not of the truth. And now we begin to make the distinctions as we develop furthermore the comparisons. What the believer's got to be able to do is to be able to distinguish between self-condemnation on one hand and spiritual conviction on the other hand. Self-condemnation can come when we look at something from the past, regret it, we have sought for forgiveness, we've repented of sin, we've experienced it, but time and time again it just simply resurfaces. And we feel forever chained to that past time period. The question you've got to be able to answer, is grace greater than my sin, or is my sin greater than God's grace? But then you go to the cross, you see. You cannot either add to nor subtract from what Jesus Christ has done for you and for me. And now you're going to ask yourself, if I am of the truth, am I willing to apply the truth? That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, you see. That is an incredibly liberating truth. But then again, it's the truth that sets you free. 
For whenever our heart, it doesn't say God here, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. But whenever you allow your heart to truly condemn you, and you then choose to sit at the far side of the bench and not go back on the field, remember that is self-inflicted. That is not God's condemnation. That's your condemnation. And the Holy Spirit has a way then of prompting you to get back into action and minister for the glory, you see, of God. So ask yourself now, is this biblical or is this unbiblical condemnation that I'm grappling with at this point where I read in verse 24, whenever our heart condemns us, and he's saying in essence this will happen, let's be realistic now. Here's the truth you have to then remind yourself of. God is greater than our heart. In other words, God is the judge of what's judging you. And he's declaring you righteous when you continuously condemn yourself as being guilty. Because the believer has found that the guilt has been dealt with at the cross of Jesus Christ. Out of this, then, you're utterly astounded with me when he adds these words. He knows everything. And you say, what has that got to do with this whole matter of God greater than the heart? God knows your heart. He knows my heart. He knows your past, your present, and the future. He knows your future better than you know your past. He knows you better than you know you. And if he's willing to say, I want to reassure you regarding assurance, then if you are attempting to recondemn yourself, you're in essence saying what Jesus did on the cross was insufficient. We're back to square one. You see. So once again, we've got to now take the stethoscope and ask, is there truth here in the heart? Because when truth is in the heart, we realize, well, God is greater. God is greater than that heart. And we then have to be able to rest in the assurance of salvation. Amy Carmichael understood that. When she went to Africa, she went to an area that was infested with disease, indescribable danger. But her biography tells that she had an indomitable spirit, kept going when lesser people were prone to leave. Once, after a particularly draining day, she found herself trying to sleep in a crude jungle hut. And on that night, she wrote these words. I am not very particular about my bed these days, but as I lay on a few dirty sticks, laid across and covered with a litter of dirty corn shells, with plenty of rats and insects, three women and an infant three days old alongside, and over a dozen sheep and goats and cows outside, you don't wonder that I slept little. But I had such a comfortable, quiet night in my own heart. Is that you? Do you allow the externals to govern the internals? Or do you allow the internals to govern the externals?
The heart of the issue is the issue of the heart. So now you've squeezed 19 and 20 for all it's worth. And you have made your first connection. You've noted the connection between reassurance and a believer's condemning heart. He's going to seek you out at the end of the bench. He's going to put you right back out on the field. Just like he did with Peter. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Threefold denial is covered by threefold questions. The grace is sufficient. Jesus did not end with a second question. He went the full circuit. He does that with you and me as well. So he puts Peter back out on that field who had a self-condemning heart, and he does that with you and me as well when we're prone to sit at the end of the bench. Note the connection between reassurance and a believer's condemning heart in 19 and 20. Now you're ready for the other connection, 21 through 24. That second of all, note the connection here between reassurance and a believer's confident heart. Because now in verse 21, he starts with beloved huge word for him because he was known as the one whom Jesus loved. And so now he takes this and he disciples the next generation of followers of Jesus Christ. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, okay, you've made your way through 19 and 20 now. You're ready to join the other players out on the field. But something more is needed. You've embraced there is no condemnation, but the question is, but is there confidence? In other words, we are moving from the condemnation issue to the confidence issue. He now then says, we have confidence, where? Before God. And that is one powerful statement. Because Simon Peter lacked confidence. And not only did Jesus Christ deal with the self-condemnation issue, he dealt with the confidence issue where he so reinvigorated that heart that Simon Peter was able to stand out on the streets of Jerusalem and proclaim the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to those who were otherwise so threatening to his well-being. This is transformation. And John knows it because he was right there with Peter on the streets of Jerusalem. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence. We have confidence before God. Now what you've got to bear in mind with me at this point is that this was not something that went down easily at the time of the Reformation. When we affirm that a believer can be certain of being justified by faith before God, we part with other religions. In fact, in 1517, when Luther was grappling with this whole matter of justification by faith alone, Rome and the Roman Catholic Church called the assurance of salvation, quote, the sin of presumption. And furthermore, the Council of Trent 
later declared that it was a mortal sin to claim assurance of salvation. And now reading from the Council of Trent from 1547, the Pope had issued this edict, Whosoever shall affirm that when the grace of justification is received, the offense of the penitent sinner is so forgiven, and the sentence of eternal punishment reversed, that there remains no temporal punishment to be endured before his entrance into the kingdom of heaven, either in this world or in the future, in purgatory, let him be accursed. In other words, he's saying, let Highlander be accursed, and even more significantly, let the Apostle John be accursed, because not only is the Apostle John offering assurance in chapter 2, he's offering reassurance of assurance in chapter 3. This is overwhelming. This is brilliance. He's offering objective assurance in chapter 2 and subjective reassurance in chapter 3 to get those that are sitting at the end of the bench back out onto the playing field of life. When you feel so overwhelmed by what happened in your past, grace is sufficient. Power is perfected in our weakness, you know. And so then he says, I've got something to say to you. You know that word confidence at the end of verse at the end of verse twenty-one? It carries with it the idea of freedom of speech. If you have confidence before God, you've got freedom of speech before God, which I found ironic when I was looking at uh, an interview of some students at an Ivy League school that were arguing against the First Amendment and freedom of speech because they needed freedom of speech to argue against freedom of speech. I pondered the significance of that. And then I thought about what John is saying here at the end of verse 21. And then it's saying that you have the freedom to come before God in verse 22 and ask. Not because of a self-defeated, self-condemning spirit, but on the basis of confidence, not condemnation. Ask of him. Ask of him. Josh McDowell was attending a theological school in California. His father had went home to be with the Lord. His mom had died several years earlier, and McDowell was not sure about her salvation. He had become depressed, we're told, thinking that she might be lost. Was she a Christian or not before she died? And the thought obsessed him, he said. So, Lord, I prayed, somehow give me the answer so I can get back to being normal I've just got to know. There's that word no again. But it seemed like an impossible request to him. Two days later, McDowell drove over to the ocean, and he walked to the end of a pier to be alone, and there sat an old woman in a lawn chair fishing. Where's your home originally, she asked. Michigan, he said. Union City. Nobody's heard of it. I keep telling people it's a suburb of, and then she broke in Battle Creek. I had a cousin from there. Did you know the McDowell family, she asked? Stunned. Josh McDowell responded, yes, I'm Josh McDowell. 
she begins to cry. I can't believe it. I'm a cousin to your mother. He's taken aback. He's been praying. He finds the confidence to ask, do you remember anything about my mother's spiritual life? She gets this bright look in her eyes. Why, yes. As teenagers, we both came to put our faith and trust in Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. Praise God, shouted Josh, startling all the surrounding fishermen around them. God has a way of startling the fishermen of your life, you know. When you replace self-condemnation with biblical confidence and the freedom of speech to seek out God, even when you find yourself sentencing yourself to the end of the bench of life, So in verse 23, and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, and now you've got the two dimensions of life once again before you, the vertical and the horizontal, the the vertical that you believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, the horizontal that you love one another. Back to that vertical. Why not simply believe in Jesus Christ? Why does he say specifically, believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ? And Joseph would nod his head and smile when you ask that. As he recounts this whole matter, and he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And now you've got the whole package. So in verse 24, here's what you've done. You have bookended your certainties. You started in verse 19, didn't you? With this phrase, by this we shall know. But get this. You've worked the process. And so you come to verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him and God in him. And by this we know. And now you begin to pull all this together. Some know that they know. Some know that they don't know. Some don't know that they don't know. Some don't know that they know. Which camp are you in? The Apostle John wants you to know that you can know and know that you know him, Jesus. So where are you at? Have you sentenced yourself to the end of the bench? I watch as that young man, gifted, athletic as they come, in between innings, 
puts his glove back on his left hand and heads back off to third base. Confidence has returned. Has returned for you. Let's stand together. Hopefully we've covered theology in a practical way that makes a difference in the way in which we live our lives out. We don't put our faith in our feelings, how we feel about ourselves and how we feel about the way we've affected you. We put our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, not the unfinished challenges of our feelings. Keep us from sentencing ourselves to the end of the bench. It's our doings, not yours. You want believers back out on the field. Like Peter. If there's any in these services this morning, though, that are saying to themselves, he, her, whoever, not sure I'm of the truth. Not sure I'm in Christ. Pray now that he or she will repent of sin, put faith exclusively in Christ's work, not theirs. Christ's work, not their feelings. And trust you and you alone for salvation. Thank you, Father, for the assurance of salvation. And thank you for your great love that you even choose to reassure those who have the assurance. And for this, we give you all the praise now. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.